before we get to our passage here at the end of the book of Exodus, which uh, Exodus chapter 40, if you're using the Pew Bible, is on page 80. Before we get to it, let me uh, go ahead and pray for us. Father, we trust you. And so we come to you and ask that you would, even at this time, calm our hearts, help us not to be distracted. Help us to set aside those things that would distract us. I pray that you, by your Spirit and through the preaching of your Word, would minister to us even this morning. As we, as we talk about Exodus, as we talk about Jesus, minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So why did we start Exodus all those uh, eight months ago? Why study the book of Exodus? Why spend, you know, a good portion of a year going through an Old Testament book, right? Not a lot of people do their devotions out of the book of Exodus. Well, we talked about how the uh, book of Exodus is the most frequently cited one in the Old Testament. Amongst other Old Testament writers, Exodus is the book that's most frequently cited. Interesting. And even amongst New Testament writers, it, it ranks in the top three of, of the books of the Old Testament that are quoted by New Testament writers. It's hugely influential. The book is all over. And even as you've been doing your own Bible reading or maybe even just listening to preaching on the radio or, uh, or, or things like that, you've probably heard in the last eight months lots of references to the book of Exodus that you might not otherwise have picked up. It's because it's a very central book, and so that's why we covered it. The book itself is central. But the the events that are portrayed in the book of Exodus are also central in the development of the nation of Israel. Really, from during the book of Exodus is when the nation of Israel itself as a nation is born. Remember, when they went down into Egypt, they were about 70 that's not a nation, right? They, they, can, they come out millions strong. That's a nation, right? And so during that time in, in reading the book of Exodus, they're given laws. They're given instructions on how to worship. They're, they're, they're given, they're given a, a path for life as a nation, how they're to function as a nation. And so the, uh, the book itself is important, and the history contained in that book is very important. And I wanted to take a moment here. You, you have an outline on your bulletin. You can look at that, take notes, uh, write down the things that stick out to you or questions that you have. And I wanted to re-hit some of the key doctrinal, some of the key theological and essential truths that we glean from the book of Exodus. Because it wasn't just talking about ancient history. We were learning a lot of theology, which is a fancy word meaning thinking and talking about God. Who is God? What does the Bible say about God? We learn a lot about God in, in the book of Exodus itself. And so I've got a few of these things listed here. There are more, but we don't have time to cover them all. So I, I pulled out the ones that, that, that seem to be most important as, uh, as, I, as I went back through the book this week and reflected on it. The first is that God is self-existent and He's eternal. If you remember back in chapter 3, that's the burning bush incident. That's where God told Moses that his name was Yahweh, which means I am. Right? He's introducing himself uh, in, in, more, um, in, in more spelled out ways, in more defined ways. He's talking about who he is. And so by giving Moses his name, he makes it known that he himself is self-existent and he's eternal. First, eternity. I am is a name. It's also you know, a verb and it's in the present tense. And it's always in the present tense. 
Jesus in, in, in the book of John, talking about this, says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Well, Abraham lived hundreds of years, over a thousand years earlier. How could Jesus, living all that time later, say, Before Abraham was born, I am? Wouldn't he say, Before Abraham was born, I was? But he doesn't. He says, Before Abraham was born, I am. And so in the past, he is I am. In the future, he is I am. In the present, he is I am. He is eternal. He's also self-existent. He's not dependent upon another for his existence. For us as creatures, we are dependent upon our Creator. If our Creator did not exist, we would not exist because we are creatures. God Himself is self-existent. He's independent. He's the self-existent I am. He has always been, and He doesn't derive His existence from anyone else. So that's first of all. He is self-existent, and He is eternal. Second of all, He is self-determined. Self-determined. Another way of saying that is he is free. We, we like freedom. We're, you know, most of us are Nevadans. We're, most of us are Americans. We like freedom a lot. We don't have true freedom. No being has true freedom except God himself. He is self-determined. We see this very great statement of the Lord's glory. Flip back to uh, 33. You won't have to go too far. Exodus chapter 33. There's a discussion going on there between God and Moses. And uh, we read these, uh, in, starting in verse 18, chapter 33, verse 18, Moses saying to God, he, he says, please show me your glory. I mean, that's a bold request. Please show me your glory. And God said, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So he's defining more of what his name means. And it's interesting that Moses had asked, show me your glory. And God gives him some words. He describes himself. And how does he choose to describe himself? I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's the self-determined one. In the same way that his existence is not contingent upon another, nor are his actions contingent upon another. He is self-determined. He chose Israel not because of who they were or their potential or their leaders or anything else about them. He chose them, he makes it clear all through Scripture, because of who he is. That's why he chose them. That's the nature of his righteousness. That's the nature of God. He's the highest standard, the highest perfection. And so he makes decisions based upon who he is, not based upon some outside standard perfection, but his own standard, his own perfection. And by the way, I believe this is the highest representation of his glory in the book of Exodus, right here. When Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, God said, you can't see my face, but I'll give you my name. And then he goes on to define what that name means. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I believe that's the pinnacle of the glory of God in the book of Exodus and maybe the pinnacle in in the entire Old Testament. How does God decide how he will ultimately act? Does he hold to some external standard? Does he look at what's right and decide that he's going to do what's right? An external standard? Is there a measuring apparatus beyond himself that he measures himself and other things against? 
When he says he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and will show mercy on whom he will show mercy, he is declaring that the standard is within himself. He doesn't measure up to standards. Standards must measure up to him. More than that, he seems to be declaring that this truth about him, this ultimate freedom, is perhaps the greatest and clearest verbal representation of his glory. God is free. He is self-determined. This is an important thing to know about God. There's There's a third thing I want us to pay attention to here, and that is that God is faithful to his covenant. You see that throughout the book of Exodus. The book, the plot of the book of Exodus is essentially the fulfilling of this thing, that God is faithful to his covenant. He had made covenant promises to Abraham back when Abraham was just, you know, Abraham and Sarah. No kids, no offspring, no nation. And now, years later, the nation is struggling. They're, they're, they're suffering and, and they cry out to God. He hears them. He remembers his covenant and he brings them out. He is faithful to keep his covenant, to keep his promises. And by the way, when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he will give spiritual rest. When he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he means it. When he promises that it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, he is faithful to do just that. God keeps his promises. The book of Exodus shows that to us. He is faithful to his covenant. Fourthly, God is to be worshipped in only one way. God is to be worshipped in only one way. We talked, we talked about chapter 20. We talked about the giving of the Ten Commandments. Those, those commandments were, were put on, uh, on, on pieces of stone, tablets, right? And eventually they were included in the Ark, put in the Ark of the Covenant. And where was that Ark of the Covenant placed? In the very heart of the sanctuary or the tabernacle. That was the very heart of it because God is saying, you will worship me this way and only this way. What is placed in the center... Is, is the way that God is worshipped. The, the nations that surrounded them would put a little idol in that place and they would worship their God through that idol. By the way, just as a kind of a preview of what's to come, in, in medieval Catholic theology, the Bible had been removed from the middle. There were other things in the middle. The Bible had been taken off to the side. It was, it was removed. It wasn't at the center of worship anymore. And God says his word, as symbolized by the Ten Commandments, is the way he is to be worshipped. The only way to worship God truly is the way he prescribes for us. Exodus is the second book of the law. It's the second book of the law. How is the law applicable to us? You, you, you probably didn't read from Leviticus to decide how to, what to do today, right? How, how is the law applicable to us New Testament Christians? Well, there are three basic aspects of Old Testament law that we need to know about. The first is civil law. So when we talk about the entirety of the law, it has these three elements, Mixed in, okay, these three elements. One element is the civil law. That instructs the newly formed nation of Israel how they are to behave as a nation and what sort of governing laws they are to have in place. They're a new nation. How are they going to behave? The civil law is given for that purpose. Taxes, penalties for breaking laws, etc. This law, the civil law, does not apply in our circumstances. We are not Old Testament Israel. 
That's not us. The second aspect of Old Testament law is ceremonial law. This fact, this aspect of the law laid out feasts and sacrifices and priests and offerings and all that kind of stuff, right? These specifications were given. Those laws were designed to teach Israel various theological truths about God, to teach them about God and how to worship God, right? They were designed to teach them about God and point them toward their need for someone to finally fulfill the endless sacrifices, they were to, to point to something. The feasts and the sacrifices and the offerings and the priesthood all point toward Christ as the completion and the fulfillment of those things. They point forward to Him. This, this aspect of the law is completed in Christ. And, and Chris Ward preached uh, several weeks ago on this topic of how the feasts point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. And so we Christians don't have sacrifices. We don't have priesthoods, priesthoods, and we don't have feasts. They're done away with because they've been fulfilled in Christ. That's the second aspect. The third aspect of the law is the moral law, as summed up in the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't, 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 don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, etc., right? The Ten Commandments. And I believe this is primarily what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't destroy them. He didn't do away with them. He fulfilled them. This aspect of the law, this moral aspect, remains for us. Did God's character and nature somehow change? Does He now want us to commit adultery because we're after Christ? Of course not. Of course not. So that aspect, moral law, is still for us. When you see people in the Bible labeled as lawless or lawbreakers, that's what it's referring to, people who break these laws. And you read those in Paul. He talks about lawlessness. He's talking about people who live contrary to the moral law. So it is binding upon us. Okay, so now we've, we've broken that down. Now how do we understand how to use the law? What do we do with that information? Well, theologians historically talk about three different uses of the law, about, about how the law is to be used in, uh, in our world. Remember, we're talking primarily about the moral law. I'm not talking about priesthoods and sacrifices. I'm talking about the moral law. The first use of the law is that the law is a mirror. It, first of all, shows us God, who God is. It shows us God's character and nature. God is faithful. So, don't commit adultery. Right? God, God honors authority. So, honor your mother and father. Right? The moral law is a picture of God's holy character and nature. However, when we look at it, we see ourselves and not God's holy character and nature. We see our own sin reflected. We see our own selfishness reflected. We, we see in it that we are absolutely unable to measure up to God's standard. We can't. God says do this. We can't. And so we're driven to Christ. We're driven to Christ. And so that's the first use of the law is it's a mirror to show us who we really are so that we will run from ourselves and our own righteousness and run to Christ instead. Right? That's one reason the law exists. Another one is uh, the law is given to restrain evil. Talking about Old Testament law, particularly moral law. It's given to restrain evil. Imagine living in a society where it wasn't against the law to kill somebody. Okay? And we have issues with abortion and things like that because it is lawful according to our laws to do that so we see the problems that it that it causes so the law in that sense exists to restrain evil 
All right? And so that's the second use of the law. The third use of the law is that the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. The law reveals what is pleasing to God. As R.C. Sproul wrote, this is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give Him honor and glory. How do we obey God? What does God want from us? Well, it's the law, as summed up in the Ten Commandments. That's what He wants. We're talking about the moral law. How do we obey God? How do we, what does He want from us? What, how does He want us to live? How do I live? And that's, that's what uh, the third use of the law is, is, is to show us those things in our lives that we can choose to do that are pleasing to God. And so the, this third use of the law is where we Christians find ourselves. Now, does keeping the moral law make us acceptable to God? No. First of all, you can't keep the moral law perfectly. And you shouldn't try to rely on the moral law to make you acceptable to God. We are not talking about how one comes into a right standing with God. We become acceptable to God only when we realize our own moral bankruptcy. We saw the mirror. I didn't look good in the mirror. You don't look good in the mirror. You look great now. (laughs) You don't look good in the mirror. Okay? The mirror of the law. Right? So we become acceptable to God only when we realize our own moral bankruptcy and therefore turn to Christ in faith, trusting in Him and His God-pleasing work on the cross to fulfill all the requirements of the law. You looked at the law and you saw, I don't measure up. Uh-oh. That's the first, that's the first use. I don't measure up. What do I do? You run to Jesus. That's all you do. You run to Jesus. That's, this is the doctrine that we call justification by faith that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in the next three months. By our faith, God unites us to Christ so that we stand before God in Christ as acceptable to God as Christ is. By faith. I saw myself in the mirror. You saw yourself in the mirror of the law. I can't do that. I haven't done that. I'm ugly in the law. And we run to Christ in faith who did that, who accomplished it perfectly in his life and in his death. Accomplished that perfectly and offers that righteousness to us that we could have that acceptance with God, not based upon, wow, you know, I got a 60% on the moral law. You didn't get a 60%, by the way. But not by some grading on the curve or something like that. You failed. And so we run to Christ and he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before him as acceptable to God as Christ is acceptable to God. Is Christ acceptable to God? Yes. That's what it means in the New Testament when we read in Christ. I am in Christ. I stand there with him. I could go on and on about that. And we will go on and on about that. So that's how you... Enter into a right relationship with God. So now what do you do? Okay, I stand righteous before Christ, before God, in Christ because of faith. Now what do I do? Well, what do we do? Fully justified, standing there. God is pleased with you. What do you do? What do you do? I think about this in terms of my relationship with my parents, um, and I can look back on it. I'm I'm not a teenager anymore. It's probably more difficult as a teenager. This illustration might have looked a little different, but now looking back on it with the wisdom of years, I see that I I obeyed my parents when I obeyed them because I love them. 
I wasn't trying to become a beehimer. If I do these things, I'll become a beehimer. Nor was I trying to climb higher on the ladder of beehimerness. I just was a beehimer. And, and I wanted to do what my dad said. Right? And so I'm responding out of that position that I already have. I'm responding out of my beehimerness in my illustration. I'm responding out of who I am in Christ, right? So I just want to know what my dad wants me to do. He gives us that in the law. All right? So now we look at the law and now we're from a different position. We're not trying to climb anything. We're not trying to earn anything. We're just saying, what, what do you want us to do? So he gives us the law. And so in joy to please our father, we seek to do what he says. All right, so now we look at the Ten Commandments after this whole process is gone, and, and it says, don't lie. And we lie. Man, what do I do? So even then, we find that we still can't do it on our own. Right? So once again, the law has broken us. So what do we do? What do we do at that point? We do the same thing we did at the first point. We run to Christ. We run to Christ, and we remember, I stand before God not because I did well at the law. I stand before God accepted by him because of Christ and in Christ. And there's more than that. There's more than that. He also, when we, when we entered into Christ, when we trusted him by faith, when we were declared to be righteous before God, he also gave his Holy Spirit to live within us, who empowers us to obey God. So we have two things happening right now. The fact is, Rather than trying to earn, rather than the the law is a ladder, I'm trying to get to God through it. Instead, I stand as a son, fully accepted with my Father because of what Christ has done. Just by trusting in Christ, by putting my faith in Christ, I stand there as a child of God. He's happy with me. And so now, rather than thinking of the law or thinking of obedience to God, if you want to talk about it in those terms, as something I must do in order to accomplish something, it's purely, what does my dad want me to do? And so we, we, we're acting out of a position of being accepted, of being loved, and just wanting to please our dad. Totally different. And second of all, so that's motivating, second of all, we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us who empowers us to do those things. That's where we stand. That is different. And so all of this is under the section in your notes there that talks about there's one way to, uh, to worship God, right? That was all one section. So even when we as Christians try to obey God and we fail, even then we find we still can't do it in our own. And so once again, we're broken by the law, we're broken by this situation, and we realize we need God's work in our lives even to obey what He says. So we look to the help of the Holy Spirit living within us and the motivation that we now act as those who are already at peace with God. He is already pleased with us. That's how you worship God. And there is no other way. There's another theological truth I want to draw out of there. God will get the glory. Think of uh, the, the contest, if you want to call it that. It's kind of comical to think of a contest between God and Pharaoh or God and the, and the gods of the Egyptians. But uh, what, what uh, God said was, For this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. God gets the glory out of that. All right, so those are five huge theological things that I want us to draw. You were already to point two. As I was thinking about this this week, as I read through Exodus, it occurred to me that there were three huge disasters that were averted. 
And so I want you to think about your own life in, in light of this. There were three huge disasters. The first of all, they could have been left in slavery. They could have continuing, continued languishing in slavery. That would have been a disaster. That would have been horrific. God didn't allow that to happen. He didn't leave them there, right? But then he brought them out, you know, brought them through the water, gave them the Ten Commandments, and while that whole process is going on, they, uh, they could have been destroyed by God himself. Right? Do you remember the golden calf incident? It's a pretty big incident in the book of Exodus. And they horribly disobeyed God. They, they, they instead went after idols and they went after debauchery. While Moses was on the mountain speaking with God on behalf of the people of Israel, they were back here worshiping idols and entering into debauchery. There's a lot of euphemistic language when you read through in the book of Exodus there. It was bad. It was bad. God could have judged them. And this is what God's response to that whole situation in chapter 32 and verses 9 and 10 was. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. God could consume them for their sin. In order that I may make a, a great nation of you, Moses. So we talked, uh, we talked recently about how that didn't happen. God relented from that situation. He didn't destroy them from their sins. That's a second disaster that could have been, that, that, that could have been, that was, that was averted. But the third one didn't occur to me until, until just this week as I was reading through this. And that's having God's blessings, but not His presence. I want to read to you from chapter 33. So again, the golden calf incident happens in chapter 32, 33. Moses came, uh, he, he, he comes to understand uh, in speaking with God, God says, okay, all right, I'm going to send you up into the land. I'm going to defeat your enemies. You're going to get to live in the land, but I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people, and if I go with you, I'll surely kill you. And the people and Moses realize that would be a disaster. That would be a tragedy to have blessings from God but not have God himself. And this struck me about our society, how we want God's blessings. We want material prosperity. We want health. We want everything to go well. We want all these things that, are, that God, God gives very often. He doesn't give them you know, equally to everybody and stuff like that. But these are often blessings from God. But how often... Are we tempted to seek for the blessings from God and not really care about having Him? Moses and the people realized, even if God gave us victory over our enemies and took us up into the land, if He left us there alone, that's awful. I don't want God's blessings without God. I would rather have God Himself and none of His blessings. That's a disaster that was averted. Move on to our third point. God's presence is given. Finally, we've made it to chapter 40. Look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meat. Well, let's start actually one verse earlier. Look at verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work of the construction of the tabernacle, priesthood, all that stuff. And look at verse 34. What's the first word? Then, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So when the mediatorial work was done, when, when the preparations had all been made for God's glory to show up, when that was finally all done, God's glory showed up. 
And that's what we have here at the very end, which is exciting when you think about this people and what all they've been through. Now, finally, at the conclusion of the book, boom, there's God's glory, there's God's presence in their midst. But it didn't come until they were prepared for it by the construction of the tabernacle, all the things that Moses had been instructed to do and that he did, right? Look at verses 36 through 38. We'll keep reading. I'm I'm skipping 35. I'll come back to it. 36 through 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then the people did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so you had God's presence there, and it was present to give them guidance. You have the famed pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God was there visibly leading them. Go here. Nope, don't go there. Stay here. Stay here. Go this way. He was visibly leading them. He was giving them guidance and they could see this with their own eyes. But what I want to focus on is verse 35. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. After all of this, there are still restrictions. There's still a distance between God and man, even Moses. Even God and Moses. There was a barrier. There were, there were restrictions that remained even after that. Because when his glory filled the tabernacle, Moses couldn't go in. He was not able to enter the tent of meeting. So we have a barrier. Even after all of this, even after all that's been accomplished, the whole storyline, all that God has done to redeem them and all that he's done to uh, bring them in and give them his presence, there is a newfound closeness between the Lord and his people, but there's still a barrier. Moses had followed his directions. What, What was lacking? Well, the glory of the Lord, the radiance of His perfections, His righteousness, His justice, His holiness, His omnipotence, all that God is, the radiance of all His perfections shining forth was too much for Moses to bear. And Moses had been told earlier by God, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. You'll die. So there's, there's still a kind of a barrier there. The glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle kept Moses out. It was just too much for mortal man to bear. And this truth would remain throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it was symbolized by the curtain that was placed between the rest of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies to guard off the Holy of Holies so that the glory of the Lord wouldn't, wouldn't bust out or so people wouldn't be able to enter in. Because that place inside was reserved for God. The people now had unprecedented access to God, but they did not have unmitigated access to God. Such is the case throughout the Old Testament. That brings us beyond Exodus. When Jesus gave up his life on the cross, that curtain in the temple that that signified barrier between God and them, that curtain in the temple that blocked man's access to God, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus Christ himself, who was fully God and thus fully in God's presence, and at the same time fully man and thus perfectly representing us, he perfectly fulfilled the law in his life and in his death on the cross. And when he went to the cross on our behalf as a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins to fully satisfy the justice of God, we can tell that the justice of God was satisfied. The, the curtain of the temple was torn. 
We can also tell the justice of God was satisfied because Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, which is an indication from God that he accepted the payment of Jesus' life on behalf of you and on behalf of me. When Jesus did that, when he died on the cross, the way to God was finally opened for us and the presence of God that his children have always sought became ours in Christ. Moses, the man of God, was barred from entering because God's glory was too much when it settled on the tent of meeting. Moses. And here we are. Because we are in Christ, we get to enter freely into that. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10 says. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We get to draw near like no one got to draw near before Christ. And Jesus opened the way for us so that in Christ we have access to Him. In Christ we don't have that barrier like the man of God Moses had. Moses, the man of God, we don't measure up to Him, but we're in Christ We're in Christ. And so that barrier has been pierced. Hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is us in Christ. Of all the glorious things that happened in Exodus, the glorious things that happened in Christ are far greater far greater. And this is our lot, Christians. This is our lot in Christ. Christian, we don't stand on the outside. We don't stand barred from God's presence. We are brought into God's grace, in by God's grace and His mercy and what Christ accomplished for us. The the curtain has been torn. We've been granted access. The way has been opened for us. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and let us rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm struck by how Exodus ends. It seems so glorious until you notice that Moses was barred from entering. Christian, we are not barred from entering. The way has been opened for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we we rejoice and we give you great praise. If we had to measure up even to Moses, the man of God, we wouldn't. We're just people. We're just sinners. We certainly don't measure up to your law. There is nothing we could do to earn your favor. There's nothing we could do to climb the ladder, to become become, uh, uh, more acceptable to you by the things that we do. I praise you that that way that was barred to Moses has been opened to us in Christ, that we who are in Christ have access fully to the Father. I praise you for that. I praise you there is no there, there is nothing for us to accomplish to have that. I, I praise you that there is nothing new for us to do that might make us more acceptable in your sight. We are in Christ and therefore you look at us and you see Christ. We are accepted by you, not because we have been made acceptable in our own strength or efforts or anything else, 
But by faith in Christ, we've been justified, declared to be righteous before God. So we get to enter in, and we do, and we, we enter in and we rejoice. We rejoice that we get to have this conversation with you. We have this ability to talk to you. We have relationship with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have you as our Abba, Father. Make this glorious in our sight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.